The prevalence of obesity in Canadian children has risen dramatically from the 1970s, more than doubling among both boys and girls. Estimates from 2009 to 2011, based on measured weight and height for children aged 5 to 17 years, suggest that 32% are overweight or obese, with the prevalence of obesity almost twice as high in boys than in girls. Childhood obesity is associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes in adolescence, and later in life, and studies suggest that excess weight in children often persists into adulthood. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Deputy Editor at CMAJ. Today we're speaking with Dr. Patricia Parkin, who is a pediatrician at the Hospital for Sick Children and a professor with the University of Toronto Faculty of Medicine. As well, she is the chair of the Child Obesity Working Group at the Canadian Task Force on Preventive Health Care. CMAJ recently published the Canadian Task Force Guidelines for Prevention and Management of Overweight and Obesity in Children and Youth. So welcome, Dr. Parkin. Thanks for joining me today. Let's talk first about growth monitoring. The task force made a strong recommendation, but based on very low quality evidence, that children and youth should be measured at all appropriate primary care visits. Why is that? Well, thanks, Diane. First of all, I just want to start off explaining a little bit about growth monitoring. As you know, the task force typically focuses on screening tests that are meant to identify early stages of disease. In the context of early identification of overweight and obesity in children, we scanned the literature and addressed clinical practice, and that suggested to us that growth monitoring is the most frequently used method of screening children for problems with their growth. So just as a definition, growth monitoring refers to serial measurements of weight and height or length, depending on the age of the child, and then calculating a body mass index, or BMI, and then graphing these measurements on a growth chart. So we initially started our work by trying to seek uh, studies that evaluated screening using growth monitoring, but did not find appropriate amount of literature on this topic. Therefore, given those lack of studies, this is the reason that we graded the evidence as very low. Now, that being the case, we also recognize that growth monitoring is a long-standing practice in primary care. It's used to identify disturbances in children's health and nutrition, and it's recommended by many other organizations, both nationally and internationally. Notably, there is a collaborative statement between key national professional organizations in Canada, which represents dietitians, family physicians, pediatricians, pediatric endocrinologists, and community health nurses, and they all, in their collaborative statement, recommend growth monitoring using the World Health Organization, the WHO, growth charts adapted for Canadian children. In our search, we also identified a systematic review that found that parents frequently underestimate their children's weight status. So altogether, in our judgment, we felt that growth monitoring is a long-standing practice, it's feasible, it's low-cost, It's unlikely to result in harms, although we couldn't find evidence of this, and we also thought it would be likely to be valued by parents and clinicians, although we couldn't find direct evidence for that, in identifying children and youth at risk for weight-related health conditions. And so for all of these reasons, we provided a strong recommendation for growth monitoring at all appropriate primary care visits. So despite the very low quality evidence, we should continue doing what we're doing, which is measuring children. Yes. So given the risks associated with childhood obesity in adolescents and later in life, such as cardiovascular disease and diabetes, prevention is is important. When you started to look into the literature on prevention, you were met with some challenges. What gaps did you find in the evidence? 
So we were really interested in including prevention in our guideline, not just growth monitoring and not just management. We wanted to include any identified literature regarding prevention. And we also noted that other guidelines had not previously tackled recommendations for prevention in primary care. So we hoped that this would be a, a unique contribution. And indeed, we identified over 90 trials of um, children receiving preventive interventions. However, none of these studies evaluated prevention of overweight and obesity in exclusively healthy weight children. All of the studies included what we call mixed weight populations. That is, the studies included a mix of children with underweight, healthy weight, overweight, and obesity. So that uh, provided us only with indirect evidence that we could take to our guideline. In addition, most of the studies were conducted in settings outside of healthcare. Most of the studies occurred in school settings or community settings. So due to these fairly substantial gaps and the very indirect nature of this um, evidence, we ended up uh, grading the evidence as very low quality. However, we also noted that it was a large body of evidence and in some circumstances we could consider it to be relevant to primary care practice. So. In that case, we decided that we would, in fact, include this evidence in our recommendation, despite it being indirect. Now, the task force recommended that primary care practitioners not routinely offered structured interventions to prevent overweight and obesity in children and youth. And yet, parents are going to read a lot in the papers about you know, the rising epidemic of obesity. So what should I, as a practitioner, do if a family comes in and they're worried about weight gain in their children? So that's a really important question, Diane, and I want to first of all address why we ultimately made this recommendation against. So the recommendation against is a weak recommendation against, and we said that we recommended that practitioners not routinely offer structured prevention interventions. So we need to remember that the the body of evidence was for trials of structured intensive preventive interventions. In making this recommendation, we placed a high value on the lack of evidence of clinically important benefit of preventive interventions. There was only a small benefit. The lack of evidence of sustained uh, benefits over the long term. Most of these studies only lasted several months and did not show sustained benefit. And the lack of evidence for the use of these interventions in primary care. As I mentioned previously, there was really a paucity of studies that had been conducted in primary care. Again, having said all that, when we deliver a weak recommendation, that implies that practitioners should consider beginning a conversation. So in this case, we might suggest that practitioners begin a conversation with parents and children who might, for example, inquire about the prevention of overweight, or if the practitioner thinks that there will be benefit to the child and family by uh, starting this conversation. We believe that this will help families develop a strategy according to their own values and preferences. For example, practitioners may assess a child's risk for obesity and then discuss with the family what their goals are for health, nutrition, and physical activity. Another example might be if practitioners consider maintaining growth monitoring through uh, childhood and adolescence for those children that they believe have high risk factors for obesity or for those children that they had concerns about their growth trajectories in early childhood. So despite our weak recommendation against practitioners routinely offering structured preventive interventions, we think there still are things that uh, practitioners can do to uh, work with families on preventive efforts. 
So perhaps if a family, I mean, as you said, you're not going to refer routinely, but there will be families that a practitioner can engage with, as you said, in starting the conversation about some things that they can do. Exactly. I think there are many things that practitioners are already doing that may not be uh, entirely based on evidence, but are guided by the the, uh, questions and concerns of families. So now for children and youth who are already overweight or obese, uh, the task force made a couple of recommendations around behavioral and pharmacologic interventions. Can you tell us a bit about these? So once we continued our review of the literature on prevention, we then moved to examining the literature on management. And we identified more than 20 trials on management of overweight and obesity in children and youth in the age group of 2 to 17 years. So just to note, there were no studies in children under 2 years of age. So these studies examined what we've called structured behavioral interventions. These interventions tend to include exercise, healthy nutrition, lifestyle components, They usually involve multiple sessions over a long period of time. They're delivered by a specialized interdisciplinary team, usually involve group sessions and incorporate parent and family involvement. Studies showed that children in the intervention groups had a decrease in BMI over time and a greater reduction in prevalence of overweight and obesity as compared to children in the control groups. So we considered that these findings from these studies um, demonstrated modest short-term benefits, and we didn't identify any concerning harms. Therefore, on the basis of this um, analysis, we made a weak recommendation for practitioners to offer or refer to structured behavioral uh, interventions aimed at healthy weight management. We also examined pharmacologic interventions. It's notable that we found no studies in children 2 to 11 years of age, and therefore, in that age group, um, certainly we recommended against primary practitioners prescribing medications. We found two studies that used Orlistat in youth 12 to 17 years of age. In both of these studies, children in the intervention groups also received behavioral interventions. So the decrease in BMI was very small, and those children receiving the Orlistat experienced more harms, such as gastrointestinal problems. So for this older age group, we also recommended against primary care practitioners prescribing Orlistat. Um, It's notable that specialists might consider prescribing pharmacologic interventions, but our recommendations, as you know, are focused on primary care practitioners. There has been a lot, of course, about the use of bariatric surgery and its success in adults. But why did the task force recommend against routinely referring (laughs) obese children and youth um, for bariatric surgery? We have to remember that our recommendations are focused on uh, the role of primary care practitioners. So first of all, we didn't find any studies that examined bariatric surgery compared to an untreated control group. Therefore, we felt that it was not appropriate for primary care practitioners to refer directly for bariatric surgery. We did note that there is some more recent evidence comparing surgery with behavioral interventions. And so perhaps these decisions regarding surgery would be best made by a subspecial, a specialty interdisciplinary team rather than the primary care practitioner, him or herself. So if a, if a clinician had a, a, a child or a youth in their practice who was quite obese, then you would be thinking the natural thing for us to do would then be to refer to, to a specialty clinic. Yes, I think that would be appropriate. Specialty clinics are, as I described earlier, multidisciplinary teams who have expertise in behavioral uh, interventions and have expertise in identifying which children would best benefit from uh, bariatric surgery.
But it sounds like for a lot of, of kids in our practice, certainly the things that we can do is we can monitor them, we can discuss prevention if, if parents um, inquire about that, and if we have kids in our practice who are overweight or obese, we can start to talk to them about some behavioral interventions then. That's exactly right. Well, are there any resources that the task force has to help clinicians apply these guidelines in their practice? Yes, the task force has developed some resources for clinicians. In addition, we'll be providing links to other key resources. A very important key resource are resources relating to growth monitoring. The collaborative group of dietitians, family physicians, pediatricians, and community nurses have developed an extensive resource list to aid practitioners in appropriate growth monitoring. Specifically, growth monitoring requires appropriate equipment, measuring equipment, and appropriate measuring technique. And resources from the collaborative group are available to teach these skills for uh, interdisciplinary primary care teams. We will also provide some links to regional community-based health promotion programs for practitioners and families that are interested in preventive interventions in their community. And we'll also provide some links with some of the emerging uh, regional management programs that we have learned about across the country. Well, thank you, Dr. Parkin, for joining us today to talk about these really important guidelines. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Diane. We've been talking to Dr. Patricia Parkin from the Canadian Task Force on Preventive Health Care and from Sick Kids in Toronto. Pat heads the Child Obesity Working Group. To read the complete recommendations, visit cmaj.ca.